time to turbocharge your online presence and unlock the true potential of your website's digital journey with the Frictionless Experience. This podcast delves deep into the world of user experience to help you eradicate costly friction. Join us as we dive into website and mobile app optimization to explore how refining your digital playground can become a game changer for your business. This is the Frictionless Experience, brought to you by Blue Triangle. Hello, and welcome to the Frictionless Experience podcast, where we lay waste to digital friction. I'm Chuck Moxley. And I'm Nick Palladino. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about user experience, design-driven thinking, and how to deliver as good of an experience on B2B websites as great consumer websites deliver. Joining us as an expert on these topics, Jeffrey Cologne, who's Senior Director of Digital Marketing at Dell. In addition to his experience at Dell, Jeff spent more than nine years at Microsoft, where he founded Microsoft Advertising's brand studio and five years in agencies, including Ogilvy and & Mather and 360i. Jeff is also an author, a lecturer, a speaker, and he's actually hosted his own podcast. Jeff, welcome to the Frictionless Experience. Nice to uh, speak to you both, Chuck and Nick. We're excited to have you with us today. We're really looking forward to this discussion Based on our prep call, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Help us understand your role at Dell and what you and your team are focused on. Yeah, uh, I run the digital marketing team at Dell. Um, You know, when you think of a modern digital marketing team, you know, you think of all of the tools that are uh, integrated into a team, strategy, analytics, uh, you know, foresight, tools, um, uh, design. Uh, you know, you're really content writing. I mean, you're really trying to figure out, you know, who audiences are, which is where your strategy and analytics team comes in, what you want to basically build for them, which is where your sort of content team comes in, you know, how it looks, which is where your design team comes in, and then how that's all measured at the end, which is where your analytics team comes in again to sort of create this flywheel effect. I think, you know, more and more companies have really set up um, you know, their orgs like this because they sort of take into consideration, you know, how do we reach audiences? Who are they? How do we influence them? Who do they have to go and influence since everything is, is, is you know, usually a group decision? And then how do we make that uh, transaction happen after we inspire and get them to learn about what it is they're trying to, to learn? So, you know, it's a team built to be lean, but it's a team also built to understand that the the buying experience, specifically in, in, in certain lines of business, can be long and and not necessarily in you know happen in real time, which is what a lot of people think happens in sort of the digital marketing world. Got it. Okay, good. And you have such a varied background and you have a lot of experience on that creative side. How does that creative background impact the way you approach driving frictionless digital experiences at Dell? I mean, I think the creative side helps in terms of, you know, how you come up with figuring out what solutions, you know, may look like, you know, there's always a problem in business that you're trying to solve. Creatives approach that in a way that is, I think it's actually a lot like engineers. I I think most creatives who are listening to this would be like, no way. I don't, I don't think or act like an engineer, but you know, creatives build things for people. Engineers build things for people. And we, we sort of approach things in a very design thinking manner. What's the problem? Who are we trying to solve it for? 
what are a number of different solutions for that? And then you sort of figure out what the one best one is, but you also use the scientific method. Hey, this is the best one, but if it ends up not being the best one and there's a better way, how do you shift to that? I think, I think it's interesting because a lot of people would just don't think creatives and, and scientific types are really similar. I think we are. I'm one of those sort of few that thinks in the contrarian viewpoint to this. Um, and I think that's where it's helped me a lot. You know, Chuck is just sort of approaching things like, all right, what is the problem? What do we want to solve for? What are the what if scenarios? That's very, very much like how a, a lot of scientists approach things. Yeah, I, I like hearing that a lot, honestly, because it, it resonates with me personally. Um, I was always a creative type when I was younger and doing things with like video editing and, and filming and recording and, and always doing something with, with like artistic stuff. And, and here I am in, in more of like a data and analytics role, yet the same lessons apply and help me thrive because it's all that creative thinking of how do you solve that problem? How do you think bigger? How do you segment your data properly? And all of those concepts are inherently creative. Yeah, I think like we've gotten into this world where we assume like, oh, you deal with numbers, you can't be creative. But like math is very creative. It sort of makes order out of chaos, but you can use it in a variety of different ways. I mean, talk to anybody who's in financial engineering, they'll tell you like, hey, there is no sort of set pattern to how some of these instruments are that we use. So I think that's always fascinating in terms of, you know, how how we use numbers and and also numbers are used in a lot of different areas where we don't think numbers are used like i always used to hear like oh you're you know you're studying the social sciences nobody you know that's like an area that nobody uses math and it's like what are you talking about like there's statistical modeling in all of that it's just a different type of math nick to your point um so hopefully we're getting closer to a world where and i'm starting to see more and more of it when i talk to younger people you know, hey, I'm majoring in, you know, computer science and philosophy or I'm majoring in art and physics. Like that's not frowned upon anymore because I think we're starting to get back to a world where all this stuff is connected and you can do, you can be into a lot of different things and not be maybe looked upon as, hey, that's weird. You should just sort of specialize in one area. Yeah. And something that makes me think of is like just the concept of thinking outside the box, right? Thinking inside the box, that's very scientific. Thinking outside the box, that's where your creative comes in. And so everyone has a blend of scientific thinking and, and creative thinking. And how do we make sure that we, we leverage that blend of, of everyone's unique capabilities? Yeah. And I think, you know, that's how you get the most out of like teams and trying to figure out, you know, what is it that you're trying to do? Like if you had everybody on a team that thought the same way, the, 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 the solutions you come up with are just not going to be really interesting because they're always going to be, hey, this is what we want to do. And when you have a much more diverse team in terms of how they think, a diversity of thought, you get a lot of really crazy answers, which is actually good because that usually leads to a lot of really interesting solutions. I think that's sort of where we are right now in like the whole customer experience side of things is like, the weirder the idea, the more it sticks out, the more it's probably going to become talked about. When it's talked about, that acts as a form of marketing that draws more people in. We're, we have too many people who are like, what is that company doing? 
oh, they're doing that. We'll do that too. But then it doesn't differentiate yourself at all. And sometimes, let's be honest, things that other people are doing or other companies are doing aren't necessarily the best solutions. Why would you want to copy that? I think that's where we're now moving into a world where, you know, to quote Jeffrey Moore, who wrote a book, Crossing the, you know, the Chasm, you're going to have, I think, like some companies move ahead of others, not necessarily because they adopt certain technology, but they just understand that, hey, people really enjoy this experience that and and that just draws in, you know, more people. I think the further we try to get away from experience when it comes to design, the more we realize that's what motivates people. I, I don't know about both of you, but I sort of sit and look at all the experiences across the web and I rate all of them in terms of that is one of the worst experiences and this is one of the best. And that's really, I think, how we have to approach, you know, marketing in this day and age is not just is this the best experience for our line of business, but is this the best experience overall in a digital environment for the people we're trying to reach if they were ranking us based on all the things that they engage with across the web? And then when you talk about ranking those those experiences from one to the next, you also have to take in for consideration who your population is, who is coming to your brand. Why does your brand resonate with certain types? And if you don't, you're already losing against the the broader competitive landscape because you're you're using the same experience for everyone or targeting that same experience that that other brand has successfully gone for their own population. So your overlap might be 60%, but for your 40% that are unique to you, why are those experiences lacking for them? And that gets back to that first concept we were talking about, where it's really about understanding how to creatively target those different populations. Yeah. And humans, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, we're, you know, we, we have a herd mentality, you know, that's allowed us to evolve and survive, but it's also in the modern age led to like what we're talking about. Hey, this is, this is no different than what else I'm seeing. I mean, if we look at all the different design out there, when it comes to apps, all of them look similar. I haven't used an app in a really long time that I've said, wow, the design of this is light years different from everything else because everyone sort of wants to start from the place of, well, what has everyone else designed? And we'll just sort of, you know, copy, transform and combine it from there. What I'm starting to see more of is just companies who are just literally copying rather than transforming and combining into a new experience. They're forgetting those, 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 those second uh, and third steps in that equation, which is really what all creativity is about. You know, you're really copying, transforming and combining, you know, different elements into something new. You know, it's funny because I was lucky enough to have been working in an ad agency and in on the and and very interested in the digital side when the internet actually came out, when companies started leveraging this. And I'm talking, I'm going to date myself a little bit. I'm talking back in the 80s. And there was no model for how you build a website. There was there were no website, right? It was all new. And so we like we were working with a, cli a client who was part of Bell South or probably now is Verizon or something. It was a te telecom. AT&T. Or AT&T, yeah. Uh, I can't remember who bought whom. Uh, but back then it was part of Bell South and they were a they were a, like a network uh, that, that was like where you could use like the Blackberries or Blackberries and and the whole bit to, for dispatching pe people. And I remember we, and again, I was working at an agency. So our first website was a stadium. 
Like we built, we created this 3D kind of uh, to the level you could do it back then stadium where you went to different parts of the stadium to learn about some aspect of the company. It's like, cause nobody had ever done it. So we just started from scratch and took it from a, I don't know, what do we want this experience to be? Now it seems kind of nutty <laughs> and people would look at that and go, what the hell is this? Cause it doesn't, doesn't look like a website, but back then it was like anything. It was totally a blank sheet of paper. It was kind of. Yeah, it's, I would love to almost see the design of that just because it's like, imagine, you know, imagine like just if we still designed that way, you know, if like, if like that was what sort of, you know, things looked like in this day and age, ultimately we, we've evolved and tried to sort of go with similar templates across the web. But I love that story, Chuck, because I think it just shows like, you know, hey, we don't really know the path forward. This is all new. I think we're actually experiencing that again, but it's it's always fascinating when you start at sort of ground zero in, in sort of a new movement, what we would call the golden era of anything, because, you, you know, now where we are, we sort of look back on the evolution of the web and we're like, whoa, how did we get here? But yeah, it started somewhere to your point, so... Yeah, I don't know if the Wayback Machine was operating then. I'll have to go look and see. Because <laughs> I love that. I go back and look at old sites all the time. One of the most disappointing things for me personally was when the old like 1990s Space Jam website, which was maintained for the longest time until they created this new Space Jam movie, which was released what two years ago, however long ago. But it was it was maintained. So it was the old version. And it was exactly like what you're talking about, Chuck. I'm pretty sure you could like go into like the Looney Tunes locker room and like click on a locker. And it was like looking like you were inside it. But that's that's just exactly what comes to my mind is is maintaining that. And it looked very dated, but it was so elegant in its own. I, I, I can't remember if it was good. I just remember it was different <laughs> or, or unique because the whole the whole medium was unique. and We had no nothing to reference. So Jeff at, at Dell, you're responsible for their B2B website as well as consumer. What are some of the differences that you all have to design for in building a, a B2B digital experience versus consumer? It's there's certain companies that, you know, they were maybe at one time were very B2C driven and then they sort of became mixed and were B2C and B2B. And then some companies moved totally over into the B2B realm. I mean, I think IBM comes to mind. IBM was really a B2C company that then became like a B2B company. Like they're strictly a B2B company. And I think, you know, even companies that want to say they're B2C, I think are really B2B. I think, you know, my my past employer, Microsoft, is really a B2B company, even though they have, you know, some B2C there. Um, but building it is really approaching it in a in a similar fashion to you know, how you would do a B2C site, which is, you know, who's coming there? Who are they probably having to talk to? What are the ways that they want to share information? What are they trying to do when they get there? You know, like there, there's almost like an entire journey um, that, uh, you know, comes down to almost a science in terms of, you know, when someone lands on a page or comes to the site, rarely do they want to transact right away. That's, you know, that's just not where B2B sort of lives. Because you also have to think about the fact that they're probably tr having to make a purchase decision that isn't as easy as I'll just put my credit card in here and then, you know, click buy. So you need sort of like an inspire and learn phase to things 
then a buy, then a use part. Like I think one of the areas that are, is missing on websites is that area where you're actually collecting information from real customers who act as word of mouth to future customers, what they like, what they don't like. You know, you want to be objective in terms of the service models and the, and the solutions that you provide. I think most companies in B2B usually use a formula, which is let's have someone land, we'll tell them everything about us, which isn't really interesting to the person that's there. They're not, they're not really wanting to learn about the company. They do want to learn about the company, but not right away. They actually are there to solve a problem. So they're like, hey, where's the inspiration to solve this problem? Okay, you've hooked me. Now, what are the solutions to help solve that problem? Okay, now you've got me. Why should I use your solution? That's when you tell the person about who you are. So it's a lot like when you think about matchmaking, which I hate to use this as an analogy, but it's a good one. If you're meeting someone for the first time, you're not interested in who they are right away. You're interested in all the other things. Hey, what, you know, what, what brings you here? What are you looking for? What are the things that sort of, you know, motivate you? Then you get into the deeper aspects of things in terms of like, you know, here's, you know, what I'm about. Here's what I want to do. Here's the things that I'm basically like looking for. So I, I think like B2B in a lot of ways is really about, you know, making sure you're inspiring people and then you're leading them into, hey, here's who we're, we're about. And if you want to stay connected to sort of learn more about these solutions, then you're sort of getting them into an, an, an sort of a, a back and forth um, reciprocity stream, so to speak. I think some companies are very quick also to sign up right away because you'll want to. And it's like some of the times you get onto a website and you're like, what am I signing up for? I'm not, I'm not, I'm here to learn about things. Like at least get me to that before you then try to like lock me into these things. So I think that's part of this world of content design. Design is real design and experience. I mean, I'm not telling both of you anything you don't know. But it's always been a huge part of the web that somehow, for a period of time, we got away from that. It's almost like we don't need designers. We'll just sort of have this function in the technical way that we need it to function. And then companies, I think, started to realize, wait a minute, we could actually boost revenue if we had some interesting design based on the human elements, how people behave. And that will then get us to actually lock in more people into what we want, basically this back and forth reciprocity, where then they become a customer and then we're basically able to track their needs. Because honestly, a modern B2B site, you're not just going there to learn. Ultimately, when you do become a customer, there, there's, a, there's a way to keep track of what are the things that you've bought? What's your history of the things that you've bought? That way you can talk to them about what do you need next? And that's really like sort of this nudge philosophy in design, which is, hey, they bought these servers from us. In the future, let's nudge them on data protection that they'll need for those servers. And that's really what I think is missing in a lot of B2B relationships is you get in and they're like, hey, we want to sell you everything. Again, they don't fundamentally understand, wait a minute, I can't buy everything right now because that's not how my budgets work and I got to go talk to 20 people. And then they nudge too quickly. So these recommendation engines that are like, you bought this, you want to buy that. That may work a little bit in B2C, 
And of course, Amazon made that famous. But I'm now starting to question more and more if that really is the reality of what people want. I think I read something that the average day we spend now, if we could actually extend time, is 32 hours because people have so much going on. So if you think about how much time people spend on things, you need to simplify all of that. And part of that is not constantly notifying people on things they don't need to know about. Because then what you come across as is the company that is annoying. And that's when the unsubscribe button, and you both will remember this. Remember back in the day when you get an email <laughs> and you didn't want to get that email? What did you do? Oh, <laughs> right. You just hit un you just typed unsubscribe and replied back to them. And that's really the world that we're in again it, with a lot of these companies is uh, more people I think are just going to unsubscribe realizing a lot of this is automated junk. I don't want this. And that has to come across programmed in a human way, which actually is like, oh, I am interested in this now. Um, so I think like, you know, all this is tied together into one ecosystem, your website, mobile alerts, email, all of that is really all in one. Yet, I think some companies separate that. And in the future, that really needs to come back together. Uh, very much like how things were separated in the agency world, media buying, digital design, uh, social media, it was all fractionalized. That all has to come back together into like one model, like one centralized model that's really focused on, you know, humans and what humans are, 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 are you know, desiring. You know, speaking to that unsubscribe, the modern version of it that I find is truly a frictionless digital experience is what Gmail has done for my email address. It, it'll provide me a button, and I'm sure everyone has, has seen this at this stage, but a button that says unsubscribe from this because you never click these. It's like, oh, well, first of all, like, I like that brand a lot. Should I unsubscribe? I'm not clicking on it, though. It's like, whoa, that's like a philosophical debate that you have to take sometimes. But nine times out of 10, I don't look at that thing. Yeah, I'm just going to click that button and it's done for me, right? They're clicking the actual email button on the inside. It's very simple technology, but that is a frictionless experience. It's really cool when you start thinking about it and, and way advanced from typing in unsubscribe and hit and send. Yes. And I love that. I love, I mean, just, I love the fact of where you're going with in the, in, in the theory of being frictionless, the fact that this podcast has it in the title. I mean, that's almost like, it's like something we've forgotten about in all the things that we do. It's almost like companies have said, wait a minute, let's just make, it's almost like they've become obstructionists. Let's make it as difficult as possible because it'll make it easy for us and then the customers are like, this is one of the worst experiences ever. Hopefully I never have to do this again. It was like getting my teeth pulled. I mean, these are some things I've, I've heard from, you know, customers over the past decade is like, wow, this is a terrible website. This is a terrible experience. You know, I had to, I had to, I could, do, I could do this on the site, but then I had to call a number in order to do this other thing. Like, again, when we think frictionless, you have to think about, all of the steps that someone would do that you maybe don't think about, because that's what designers do. Hey, we're leading them here, but what if they do this? Oh, we want to make sure we're leading them in, in, in that they don't get basically lost. They don't run into obstructions. And I think sometimes we miss that because we're like, well, no, we only want them to go this direction. And it's like, have you met human beings? That's not how most of us behave. Like I like to cause trouble just to cause trouble. Maybe that's good or bad, but I'm always the one like in a room saying, 
what if people do this? And they're like, but they won't do that, Jeff. And I'm like, no, they will. Cause I just thought of that scenario. We need to think about how we design or redesign to get back to the point of how this remains frictionless for those who are basically trying to, you know, undertake or partake in the experience. Yeah. And, and that also reminds me of two concepts that I like to talk about a lot, which is developer bias and product bias. Um, developer bias is basically you're developing for yourself and you're developing within your environment. And then you can create friction because your environment is so much better than most of your customers. You have a better internet system. You have a better computer. You have better a phone and you're working on the best everything. And that creates that friction because not everyone has the best. Then on, on the flip side, that product bias, this is one where it's, it, you, and it goes back to you mentioning the scientific method. You go out to prove your hypothesis rather than test it. And so you've spent a lot of effort in, in saying, Hey, this thing is going to provide my customers with something great. And then they go and they deploy it, they test it and they prove that it worked instead of testing that it worked. And that then creates what's considered like product or feature bloat on your digital experience. All of a sudden you add all of that on top of each other and you're juggling balls as a customer and you don't know what to do. And that creates that, that digital friction. And we, you know, being able to fight those things with, with obviously analytics is where, where you have to start, start tackling it, but you also have to just go after the pride of the developer, the pride of the product manager, because it's really difficult as designers to be able to say, Hey, I think we've gone a little too far. And where do you put the stake in the ground to be able to quantify that and show that? You know which friction points are hurting you the most? Finding friction with your current tech stack is a good start, but monitoring and digital analytics tools only tell part of the story, leaving you with unanswered questions. Only Blue Triangle quantifies revenue-robbing friction on every page so you can prioritize issues and fix what matters most. Companies can't afford websites with maddening friction. Visit bluetriangle.com today and turn observability into profitability. To learn more or request a demo, visit bluetriangle.com. Yeah, I think like ego is the enemy in, in everything. Like, you know, it's that's why we talk a lot about humility and design. The reason why you want to be humble is because you you always want to go into things saying, I don't know if this is the right answer. I think this is maybe what we want to do, but I don't know. That's very different from the arrogance of like, well, I have 50 years, uh, 15 years of experience and I know how this stuff is done. Uh that's some, that's a, that gets you, that, that gets you to your point, you know, Nick, where you have feature bloat, you have like, well, this is what everybody wants. I know that they want that. It's like, do they want that? It's like, yeah. Then even came back on the service surveys we ran. Yeah. How many people were in the surveys? Were they real users? Are they power users? That's the other big thing. Power users are massive in, in figuring out the best experience because they're the ones actually using your tools all the time. I will, I will never forget saying to concur the finance, you know, sort of software. Yeah. You know, cause I, I had a, a friend who worked there and I said, Hey, who's the, who's the design team on this? And then, Oh, why, why do you want to talk to them? Cause uploading receipts is not how any of this really operates in the real world. I want to snap photos. This is years ago. I want to snap photos with my camera and just be able to upload them. Well, how are you doing it now? I got to go to a printer. I got to staple everything onto a sheet of paper. 
I got to put down on the printer. I got to photocopy it. I got to scan it. I got to like, look at how many steps that is. No wonder nobody likes to do expense reports. So understanding, hey, how are people using technology and how do we bake that into our product power user is like, that's who you want to talk to. The, the issue that a lot of times we get to is the ego of, we spoke to all these people. It's like, yeah, none of them are power users. Now, granted, you need those people because those, they're your future customers, but they don't really know what they, they need or like just yet. Most of the power users are the ones you sort of want to talk to, to get an idea of what are the features you use most. But you also want to be, to your point, Nick, skeptical or cautious if they're like, these are the things that I always will use. Because that's how you get you know things where you're like, okay, these power users, are, they want certain features and they never want to move beyond that. And that's going to be hard for us to ever get some of the new customers who are like, I just want a simple thing here that I push the button and then I get that. So a lot of it is just removing your ego from situations and, and just trying to sort of figure out what is the best path forward and who are the people that are using this? They're not all equal in terms of their usage of what we're building. There are certain people that constantly are on a website or constantly in an app. There are other people that casually use it. They're both important, but you shouldn't just dictate what you build based on those two groups alone. You should really try to figure out like, all right, what is sort of the happy medium here? Or do you want to build to the average or do you want to build to the extreme? I don't have an issue with companies wanting to build to the extreme, which means we really only want to go after the the, the the members of the people who are sort of in this industry and understand this language, because then you're sort of building a maybe more of a community minded experience and they get that. But then you're like sort of obstructing other new people from coming coming in. I see that a lot in the gaming industry. It's like they use language and other terms that I'm like, is anyone going to understand this? It's like, oh, no, only the hardcore will. And that's why we're using it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, and you're not going to have any new customers if you continue to just only preach to that audience. Right. And another thing to always consider is who's willing to stop and take a survey, who's willing to opt in and, and tell you that feedback, because that's only a subset of your customers in the first place. Yeah. It's usually the ones that are angry too. You notice oh, that? Oh, 100%. <laughs> One star. This is <laughs> terrible. Yeah. It's almost like any type of like when people are like, Product reviews are important. I'm like, yeah, but usually it's the people who don't like the product that leave the review more than the people who actually are like, this is great, but they're, they don't have the time to sort of talk about how great it is. And that you get in a lot of these sort of face-to-face -face meetings at events where you have people who are like part of a per, you know particular business culture. Like, am I going to trust what someone says about certain, you know, Med medical equipment, you know, online, I'm probably going to want to go to like, you know, places where those, there's a lot of people who are like, this is the tool that you want to use when you have to, you know, do this. That's why I think there's still a need for having conversations with people, even if they're casual, where you don't say, I'm running a survey here. Let me ask you some questions. The better ones are like, hey, how's it going? It's nice to meet you. You're talking, you're sort of figuring things out, and then you're getting tips. You're getting insight into how things really are. And, and we're not taught a lot about that. In fact, I, I, I keep reading how people are like, oh, I don't like to be, I don't like casual conversations with, with people. And it's like, that's how you sort of learn what motivates people and what they like and what they don't like. You know, my, my wife works in sort of the creative industry and she always says it best. 
I try to really understand what with the creative she works with, what motivates them. And it's from observing them, but also talking to them. Hey, what do you like about? Oh, I like this. I don't like this. And we don't do enough of that, I think, in the world. We, we listen to a lot of surveys, but that's not real talk. That's people, hey, how much do I get paid for this? A hundred bucks. Okay, I'll fill it out. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually done some surveys <laughs> where I qualified in theory, right? And then I get into the survey and the way they're asking the questions and everything, I suddenly realize I'm no longer qualified, but I don't know what to do at that point. <laughs> It's like they're asking me about, so I have to answer the questions the way they structured it. And I'm thinking, you're going to learn something on this. I'm not actually like, it's like, I'm not buying that kind of, I'm not buying connected television, but you're forcing me to answer questions about connected television. So I'll give you my opinion on it, but I'm actually not buying it currently. So, you know, do they throw that out? Do they recognize? Anyway, it's kind of interesting. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about surveys, I remember survey design, whole whole nother time. I remember back in the day when you would put a survey in an envelope, because this was just when, you know, this was before email, you'd put a survey in an envelope with a dollar bill and it had a self-addressed stamped envelope on it. And before you put the dollar bill in, you wouldn't get many of those things returned. When you put the dollar bill in, 90% 90% were returned. And me, me and an old boss talked about this one time. We're like, why, why did that work? It's just a dollar. Because people felt, hey, wait a minute. They gave me a dollar. I, I guess I should fill this out. But then the question becomes, how relevant is that information in there? Because we all know data is not all equal. And I think in this day and age, when I look back at that, I'm like, yeah, I think a lot of that is probably like, it was probably bad data. That's what we would consider bad data. In this day and age, because there's people who are like, all right, I got a buck. I'll fill it out. And they fill it out sort of like how you, you know, you don't care about taking a test. You know, check, 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 check. There you go. There you go, Nick. And that is where I think we have a lot of that in the industry because we over index on a lot of formalities that I'm like, I don't think that's the really the way to, I don't think that's really the best way to do things. I mean, I know people don't like focus groups because that feels formal. But I don't, you know, I don't have the right answer. I don't know if like qualitative analysis is the best, quantitative, a hybrid. It's it's difficult. People will tell you one thing, they'll go behind the curtain, they'll do another. You know, we know that that happens and that happens a lot in buying situations too. Yeah, I'm going to buy that. And then they go and they realize, you know, that's quite expensive. I'm not going to buy that this year. This all reminds me when I was in college, I went to Alabama. So I'm public enemy number one at the moment, but... <laughs> How'd they get on that list? I know, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're going to be uh, immortalizing this this little clip, I'm sure. But um, I went to Alabama for broadcast school, and Nielsen selected me and sent me the little. It was two dollars. They sent me two dollar bills inside that little pack, and I was just such a nerd about it because I was like, "Oh man, I'm going to like fill this out, and I'm, I'm going to be thinking about." And it now thinking about it now in hindsight, like that created so much bias in the fact that they hit me. Now, do you want to hit some of that bias or not? But like, I I went to every degree to make sure that I was so perfect about that. But most people don't care. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, so talk about how analytics and data inform or intersect with creativity when delivering digital experiences then. Yeah. I think the interesting thing there, and it goes back to this conversation we've just been having on bias is 
you know, if you just say, I'm going to look at the analytics straight up on what's happening in a particular experience, and we're going to use that to guide where we go in the future, you're going to have the same stuff forever. Because most people sort of love things that are similar. That's just how we are as people. Where we, where we need to take analytics and where a lot of areas have used it is, what is the data telling us? And then how do we want to move the data in one area by actually taking an action so that it, that chart goes somewhere? It's one thing if you're like, hey, 90% of the people coming to the site are staying on the site and then they're going to this page. Okay, that's great. Most people would say, let's just continue to optimize and keep it that way. Smarter people would say, hey, how do we actually, you know, they're only going, they're staying on this page and then they're going to this page and then they're bouncing. Smarter people would say, hey, they're bouncing after that. What do we put on that page so they go to another page? Because then you're keeping that average site time live. And that's a creative solution that has to happen there. There's no, there's no analytics that's going to save you on that. That's a design, that's a creative system that you have to come up with that's like, okay, hey, Here's the analy- this is what the analytics is showing us. What do we, how do we want to use that as a flashlight for building a creative experience or something interesting to, to retain people or get them to take the next action? I don't see enough of that in the industry. I see most people using optimization because they're like, hey, here's all the buttons in front of me. Everything's good. I'm going to just tinker a little bit. Nobody is willing to really go to like one of the knobs and be like, we're going to turn that up all the way to 11. And that's where I think we need to, we need, we need more of that in sort of in some business areas. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Usually when that does happen, it's those are the case studies you read about forever. You're like, whoa, why did that company do that? They had some insight that allowed them to figure out where they wanted to go. Like a good insight recently as, you know, while we're recording this is like what McDonald's is doing. Like they obviously have a lot of analytics around novelty. And then they put that into motion by building some physical structures based on sort of like this 80s novelty because they know that that would attract people. So that's like a, that's a design system sort of in the real world that we can talk about. But like there's tons of things that I think we can do in the digital world that we don't sort of practice uh, because we just, we sort of depend on, you know, hey, that's what the analytics are telling us. Let's not make a move. The only time I ever see us make big moves, and when I say us, I'm talking about marketers in general, make big moves, is when that those numbers are really bad. Oh, whoa, we're getting like 0% of people who are staying on here. What do we do? And that may not really even be a creative solution as just, just as much as it's, you know, well, who's coming on, you know, to these apps? Like, are they the right people? Are, are we giving them what they need? you know, is our sort of broad reach strategy interesting to them in terms of like when they do get to use us, is it what they're looking for? I think sometimes brands, you know, sort of do this bait and switch where they're like, hey, let's go out and try to get as many people as possible, which I think is important, but they sort of aren't, they're not telling that large audience what they actually do. And then people get there and they're like, wait a minute, I'm not the audience for this. So I think we have to we have to think more creatively on a lot of these analytics in terms of how we use them to shape the future rather than just how do we use them for optimization. Yeah. And, um, you know, 
digital experience can can do two things to to demand. Obviously, you can either grow it or you can erode it. And so, as you're creating those digital experiences and driving a whole bunch of marketing volume that may or may not be important, how do we make sure that we're keeping that? And each experience serves as the marketing team for the next experience in the funnel as you go down and down and down. And so, how do I then grow each of those experiences out? And when is it? Is it time, to your point, to not optimize, but to, uh, I guess, reinitialize, right? How do I then figure out what what what's that moment of each of those stages that, hey, that's my real breakdown. And so let's let's figure out where that that breakdown of that digital experience is. I like that general thought process. I'd I'd love to be uh, be able to figure out what that indicator is to say it's not optimized time. It's it's rip and replace. Yeah, because I think you 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 know there most companies want to get into a place. I mean, you think about it, like it almost reminds me of like, hey, we want to get we want to we want to run like a you know a nuclear power factory. You know, to use this analogy, it's like we want to make sure everything is set at the right temperature, and then we don't want to do anything else because if we do anything else radical, it'll be it'll lead to a meltdown. The problem is th- there's a meltdown happening, and then they're like, whoa, we have to react to the emergency instead of really getting ahead of that and being like, what are we going to do to ever prevent that emergency from happening? Like we, you should see enough of those signals that are really happening. I mean, in, in, unless, you know, in, in case of extreme circumstances, something radical happens in the world that contextually changes your business model. But like, I think sometimes we just want to sort of set and say, okay, hey, we're good. Or another analogy, if not the nuclear reactor one, you know, th- you know, flying an airplane. Hey, I only want to sort of touch the controls when we're taking off and when we're landing. When I'm when we're in the middle of the flight, I'm not doing anything. And yes, that's important. You know, a lot of engineer friends at Boeing that have told me how that works. But you still need people to sort of like monitor things. I think sometimes we're just like, hey, the analytics will do all the work here. The data will do all the work here. In in most of my career that has never been the case. Most of the, the, the analytics folks will say, Hey, there's a discrepancy here. There's a problem here. What do we do? And that's where they turn to a lot of creative folks to say, Hey, listen, this is an issue. What do we do here? I mean, in any field, I think I learned a lot of this from people who, who, who even work on like, you know, in the financial markets. They're like, Hey, Jeff, we can see signals and then we go and sort of figure out what is going on there with, with in those areas. And then you can learn sort of quickly. It requires still some humans to make like, well, what are we going to do there? I mean, even though you're really relying heavily on technology, you still sort of need analysis on like, well, what are we, what, what's going to happen there? Because there's this belief system that companies, again, are just, hey, they're running sort of by themselves with no human input or no involvement whatsoever. We all know that that's not the case. You know, all companies, large and small whether you're running something out of your living room, you know, you make mistakes. You do, you do certain things that cause things to go a certain way. That's why you need like creative folks to figure out like, how do you address those problems? And the best creative folks, if you address that before it even becomes a problem, that's where they really thrive because you're like, Hey, here's the problem we think is going to exist here. I'm actually seeing this quite a bit in business now. Businesses admitting they do not have a shelf life beyond 10 years. So they're thinking of like a long-term plan here. And in all of that, they're really relying on statistical analysis to figure out how do we get out of here? Like, what do, how, do we, how do we exist beyond 10 years? The better companies are actually going to designers and saying, 
what do we do here? Do we have the right product offerings? Do we get out of this business? Do we have a new product offering? You know, do we go and talk to engineers and developers or product makers on like what it is that we make? I think the best example is like, you know, when you think of like Nokia, still around, still manufactures phones, but it did not start as a phone company. It started as a paper mill. So companies last longer than the products that they have. And that's what we have to think about too when it comes back to like this frictionless experience is, hey, are we actually creating something that people will come back to if we go, if we slowly evolve into other areas? I sometimes have to say the answer is no. I don't think business thinks that long term, but they should. And that's why R&D is really important and why you're always going to need creative people and why you're always going to need people solving problems in the world. <laughs> Even if we're using tech to do that, you, you still need sort of that human equation that helps get, the, you know, sort of, you know, down to the, the dirty details. Uh, Jeff, what do people get wrong about driving frictionless digital experiences? Think about a widely held belief about the digital experience that you just fundamentally disagree with. Yeah, I think one of the things is this belief that everyone is, you know, wants a relationship with the companies that they do business with. Sometimes we're just like, hey, I want the best solution. I don't mind giving up my personal data for that. But if I'm going to do that, I want a good experience. So if you think about most experiences now, the, the, you know, it's like, hey, give us all your data at the beginning, but we're not going to tell you what you get as a result of that. I think people are becoming more suspicious of that. You know, in the early days, you'd be like, okay, I'll sign up for an email list. Now you're like, no. I mean, think of how many times people are like, hey, would you like, no, don't want to give you my, or you have a burner account. Yeah. Um, you know, um, the jokes on you at gmail.com. They, they have no clue that, you know, it's, you know, so there's a lot of bad data that's there that people assume, Hey, we have really good data that we're collecting. No, you're not. Cause people I think have caught on to the fact that they don't want to give that information up as easy. And so we have to now realize in the next five years, most of the information we're training things on for frictionless experiences is based on bad data. I don't think anybody wants to have this discussion because it sort of follows like what happened in the financial markets in 2008. Why did that implode? It was a lot of bad investments. Why will we see a lot of bad sort of design in the next couple of years? Because people are going to be training it on bad data. Hey, this is what the customers are saying. Uh, I don't know about that data. And I think we need more contrarians questioning most of that to get us to think of like, hey, this is really what humans want. They want simplicity. They want, they, they want reciprocity. They are willing to give up their data, but they want something in return for that. They don't just want more offers for 5% off. That's not enough in this day and age. They're, they're, you know, so they want more that's there. They want the ability to have a say on some of the product solutions that that uh, companies are building. This is why you have some companies that are like, hey, you're now part of a team that we want you know, real feedback from you on. Are we designing the right things? You see this in a lot of digital products. I see this now even with fashion companies. What do you think of all of our new t-shirt designs? We're coming to you because we know you're a power buyer. Again, goes back to that point I was making earlier. Power users are important because they, they use your stuff a lot. 
that's where I think we need to go. We don't have, a, you know, there's too many closed walls at most companies for obvious reasons. They want to hold on to, you know, intellectual property and whatnot. But I think, you know, they don't build good experiences as a result of that because they're so, they're, they're holding their cards so close to the chest that they don't realize that, yeah, you're building stuff that most people aren't really interested in. You're making it harder for them. You're, you're making it all about you. You're basically making it all on how do we make this a data engine for us? And you're forgetting about sort of who you serve at the end of the day. I think the frictionless experience, that theory is really about how do you build things for people that people get really excited about rather than what I hear most companies do, which is I've built this really awesome thing that's only going to benefit us. My concern there in the long run is once people get on to how ridiculous you are and they start to move away from using you, what do you have left? You don't have anything. You have no trust. Nobody believes in you. And they just want to move on and find another solution. So I think we're at a weird crossroads right now where people really want to trust companies and they're cool with companies who are not asking them for all this information and want to do really interesting you know, good business deals with them, make it easy for them, make it simple, make it so it's not like 7,000 steps to buy something or get something fixed or get customer service or get all those things that we need in our, you know, day to day. And so I, I, I think what will happen is companies will continue to hire people who, and say, hey, your remit is to basically prevent all obstacles that a customer may face and truly be frictionless. That I think is the future. What are two or three final recommendations for listeners that they could apply in their own roles to drive more frictionless digital experiences? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it goes back to ask, you know, ask people really what they are using your, you know, service for, and then try to figure out how do you go above and beyond what they're asking for. So they basically are getting things that are above and beyond their expectations. So again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier here. Too many designs are like, hey, this is good enough. This is what our customers are asking for. That's what we'll design. The better companies are saying, hey, that's good enough, but then let's also take it up here and wow them. Or let's experiment. And if this fails, at least we tried it and we'll come back to the mean. We'll come back to the average where they like. I don't see enough exploration out there. And that's really how, how we evolve. We have to explore things beyond our comfort zone. This is why you've always had people feel the need to explore the world. This is why you have people now saying we need to explore space or the ocean. Like it's just in our human DNA to explore. And yet I find more and more what, uh, you know, the boundaries in experience a lot of times, especially, you know, in digital design is, well, that's good enough. That's what the data is saying. Let's not rock the boat. That sort of is, you know, like what everyone else is doing, which is good enough. And we'll stay there. I think when you, when you want to go above and beyond, you are like, Hey, let's, let's go think of something nobody else has. And then people will actually say, this is amazing. Have you seen what this company is doing? I'm going to use them all the time. They've made it so easy. It's seamless, it's beautiful, it's interesting. And it could be any industry from like the insurance sort of line of business model to, you know, 
areas like retail, which I still think suffer from like they think they're frictionless gentlemen, but whoo, a lot of retail experiences I've been in that are not that at all. <laughs> <laughs> agreed, agreed. Well, thanks for a great conversation, Jeff. Where can listeners find you? What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. Um, and then uh, you can also uh, check me out on my website, jeffreycolone.net. So uh, I, I spell that with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-C-O-L-O-N.net. I guess technically your parents spelled it that way. <laughs> you just That's continued right. it. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Frictionless Experience. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player app so you can automatically receive notifications when we upload new episodes. And be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think and, hey, what topics you want us to cover in future episodes. We're happy to cover anything that might be causing you friction. And, of course, you can find and connect with me and Nick on LinkedIn. Jeff, it's been awesome. This has been a really great episode. Thank you both. It has. Thank you. Today, Jeff highlighted the importance of creativity in driving frictionless experiences, understanding there are unique needs of different websites to design effective digital experiences, and going above and beyond customer expectations. Now to recap, here are three frictionless ideas to take the smooth path to trust and loyalty. Number one. Thinking outside the box is one of the best ways to get the most out of your team when trying to figure out how to solve a problem. Creatives and engineers are more alike than you may think and approach solving problems in a very design-led and scientific way. Having a diverse team in terms of how they think can lead to out-of-the-box ideas to differentiate your brand and connect with your customers. Number two, if you only look at analytics to guide where you go in the future, then you'll always optimize for the same outcome. Instead, Jeff says where we need to take analytics is asking, what is the data telling us? And then taking action to move the data where you want to go by asking, what if? This is an intersection of analytics and creativity to create memorable experiences. Analytics should be used to inform and improve the user journey, but creativity is needed to reimagine the customer experience. For example, McDonald's, Acting on novelty trends and data to launch their viral Cosmics, which is actually based on a classic retro McDonald's mascot. Some might say it's a weird idea, but it sticks out and makes an impression rather than being a carbon copy of what someone else is doing. Number three, at the end of the day, don't forget about who you serve, your customers. Rather than focusing on what's easier for you, consider what the best experience is for your customers. Instead of settling for good enough, don't be afraid to take calculated chances and explore beyond your comfort zone to push the boundaries of the experiences you provide your customers. And on a final thought, it's not just about providing the best experience possible in your line of business or industry. Because customers are not only comparing your brand's experience against your direct competitors, but against the best digital experience they've ever received. So combine analytics and creativity to address friction and transform ideas into new user-centric experiences. Thanks for joining us on the Frictionless Experience. 
We hope you've gained valuable insights to fuel your digital success. Your frictionless journey is just beginning. For more episodes filled with expert strategies and a sprinkle of digital magic, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, keep optimizing, keep slaying friction, and keep embracing the frictionless revolution.